Hi, I'm Simon Russell, the founder of Behavioural Finance Australia, and today I'm here with Daniel Grioli, who's the co-founder and managing partner at Gisgard Capital. Daniel advises, Daniel advises high net worth investors, family offices, and charities. Welcome, Daniel. Good morning, Simon. Um, now, Daniel and I share a strong interest in behavioural finance. We both studied psychology at university, and in fact, we've recorded a podcast before, one of... Uh, Daniel's very popular Market Fox podcast series, um, which I think are available all over the place through i3 and elsewhere. Is that right? Yeah, they, i3 is the publisher. They're available on SoundCloud and uh, from the Apple podcast as well. Sounds good. Well worth checking out. But today we're going to be focusing specifically on one aspect of behavioral finance, and that is framing, the framing effect. And we're going to be asking, as an investor, how can you use it to improve your decision making? And also as a financial services professional, so as an advisor or a super fund, for example, um, how can you use it to improve your decisions or the decisions made by your clients and members? So Daniel, would you like to kick us off by giving us a definition of what framing means? Okay, so framing is the idea that how you present information or how you choose to work with that information affects the way you make decisions. And it's especially important when you're dealing with clients or when you're dealing with boards uh, or group decision making because you need a frame that everybody understands but also that promotes the right kind of discussion amongst the group or with a client. Fantastic. So that, that's, I completely agree with what you, what you said and the importance that you just um, uh, ascribed to it, but perhaps we can drive into a, one or two examples um, that you've used the idea of framing in different ways with your clients. Can you give us an example? Sure. The first frame to think about is your time horizon and make sure that the inputs to your process match your time horizon. Yeah, I might just add to that as well because this is one of the things I picked up in my re recent book, um, Behavioral Finance, a guide for financial advisors, which is sort of looking at simple ways to do that. Um, and some of these things can come in the conversations you have with, with uh, your clients and, and investors and thinking through these sort of things. But in some ways, it's just merely the way information is presented. And, and one of the simple ways to focus better on the long term is just simply to put the long term return at the left of a table of returns. So you start with a longer term and return, and then as you progressively move across from left to right across the page, your eyes move to the shorter term returns. And uh, well, some, some research that I've done shows that that actually does change people's behavior. You do then focus more on long-term decision-making just merely by having the same returns but shown with the longer-term uh, returns first. That, that's a very important point that you make in your book. And the interesting thing that people notice when you do that as well is that those longer-term returns don't change so much. And that's, that's an important nuance is that well, the monthly may be up or down, but the longer term, you know, one month doesn't usually affect the longer term by that much. And so over time, people gradually get comfortable with the fact that, oh, yeah, the longer term is, is what it is. It's not as affected by, by shorter term um, information. One thing I've noticed working with institutions is that because they work in... Uh, highly regulated environment sometimes they feel a pressure to be on top of the details you know, to know everything that's happening in the portfolio because they have a legal responsibility they have to answer for their decisions and that tends to bias people towards narrowing their focus whereas it's a lot easier for me now working with private clients to help people to widen their focus because it's their money 
and ultimately what they're trying to do is meet their objectives and they don't answer to anybody else for it so it's it's a lot easier now to help my clients widen their frame and think big picture or long term that it is in an institution where you have these very real pressures that you know bias you towards thinking about you know what's happening today or this week or this month so one of the examples that we spoke about offline about broadening the focus is incorporating human capital into a uh, an investment decision making process do you mind just giving us a bit of a feel for those types of conversations on the asset side most financial planners and, and advisors will look at the assets that they can measure and count very easily. So economic assets like the value of the home or the value of their super. What's much harder to put your finger on and value are the intangible assets. So things like human capital. So for example, if let's take myself as an example. I'm 40 years old. I'm going to work for at least another 25 years, hopefully longer if I'm able. There's 20 to 30 or 35 years of future earnings that is an asset that I own. And that asset may actually be worth more than the financial assets that I currently own. So what I need to do is ascribe a value to that. And that involves making a lot of assumptions. And this is why it's hard for some people to do it because you, you're never going to get a perfectly accurate answer, but the value of this sort of thinking is that it shifts your frame. So it's not necessarily about uh, this is exactly what my future career earnings are going to be worth, but it's about broadening that frame. So you need to look at what I think I'm going to earn this year, adjust that for some kind of wage increase over the rest of my career, adjust that for the risk of what I do, so if you think about my job, I work in financial services. My earning is directly related to the value of financial assets. So to put it into a capital market speak, the, the beta of my personal career is probably well above one. So I need to think about that. And then I need to think about a discount factor to just like you would in a discounted cash flow exercise, discount back each year's worth of future earnings back to today's present value. And do that, you come up with an estimated human capital value or an intangible asset. In my case, I've got two kids. One's almost three, the other one's one. So there's implied liabilities for the next 20 years that I need to think about. So I need to bring those implied liabilities onto my personal balance sheet. Uh, I've got elderly parents and elderly in-laws and you know, while we hope that they'll be around as long as possible at some point there's going to be an inheritance so there's another implied asset that needs to be brought onto the balance sheet so when you bring all of these things onto your economic balance sheet not your financial balance sheet your economic balance sheet that includes these intangibles you've suddenly zoomed right out and what you notice when you do that is you know the value of your home or the value of your superannuation or personal assets that you own, especially if you're a younger person, is a much, much smaller fraction of your total wealth than you thought it might be. And that triggers a very interesting conversation with a client, and it gets them thinking very differently about how they should structure their portfolio. Yeah, look, I completely agree. In fact, in one of the things that I've gone through, which is very similar, I think, quite aligned to what you've described, is how the decision-making does change as you zoom out from the micro to the macro. 
So you might make a decision if you're looking at do I buy BHP versus Rio. It's a stock selection decision. But if I take a broader frame and look at my whole investment portfolio, then diversification issues come in. How much have I got in resources? Maybe I should be in a different industry. But then if you take another step back where you've got your property, and if you take another step back, well, then you've got your human capital and then your liabilities that go with it as well. And at each stage, you end up with different factors. And I think that, that, is that there's a nice alignment with the decision-making research that says broader frames, taking broader frames tend to at least give you as good a decision-making, but often better by allowing you to incorporate other aspects into your decision-making that you just don't see when you take a narrow frame. Fantastic, you've done your analysis on BHP, but geez, if you work at BHP and you've got all these other uh, sort of portfolio diversification issues, very even though it's a, um, a, 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 you might see it as a particularly sound investment, there might be other reasons why you might want to avoid it uh, in your portfolio. So I think that was a, a fantastic um, example. I might just touch on a handful of others from the book and maybe you sure. can chime in as sure. well where you see uh, relevance in your client conversations as well. So, so here are five um, that, uh, again, are in more detail. I'll just quickly touch on them. Uh, one is reframing losses as gains. So part of the problem people have is dealing with, dealing with losses, and we've probably heard of loss aversion. People respond too much to, to losses. Well, actually, losses, you, an easy way to avoid that psychological impact is just to change your frame of reference so it doesn't look like a loss anymore. What might be a loss over a short term is not a loss over a longer term, or maybe it's not a loss versus a benchmark, for example. So there's reframing around that. We've talked about the order of returns um, for um, uh, reframing from the from the specific to a base rate. So this is an idea of like that broader framing that we've just uh, spoken about. But um, it's the uh, again, the decision-making research looks at these things called base rates, sort of statistical averages. How do things on average go? And we tend to not factor those in sufficiently into our decision-making. So I might look at a particular stock but what is what's this what is what's the data about stocks of that particular nature or funds of that particular nature this one might look good but if every other one in this category is poor well actually that that changes the dynamic of my decision making uh, for example um, a fourth one is reframing from first order to second order thinking. So first order thinking might be here, thinking about BHP. I, mean, I keep using BHP, I have nothing against BHP, but just to use that as an example, maybe I do my analysis on BHP, I think it's fantastic. But actually I also need to think about how do other people think about BHP? Because if everybody thinks it's fantastic, well maybe it's already in the price. So the first order is looking at the company, the second order is thinking about how other people think about that company. And here I think is another gap, but it's easier to think about BHP, less easy to see what other people are doing and thinking about it in particular. And the fifth one I would add to the list is something that I struggle a bit with, I guess, some of my clients, which is reframing thinking away from the purely rational, what should people do, to the behavioral. So for example, when we're dealing with financial literacy, we, give people, we should be able to give people information. Once we give them information, well, they should make the right decisions. But actually, that doesn't; those dots don't tend to be joined nearly as easily. So there's a bunch of other things that happen between the sort of knowledge and the rational and the behavioural, and I, that's that's where I think there's a substantial gap uh, in um, sort of client engagement across financial advisors, super funds, and others in many cases. Just listening to that list there, would you do you see um, particular um, examples from your all, clients? All of them. So we we engage in all of the. The points that you've just raised, raised. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I, I did promise to keep this short, so I might wrap it up there. If people are interested in having a chat to you, where can they get in touch? 
So we put a lot of research on our portfolios and what we're doing up on our website. So if you check out the research page on www.giscardcapital.com.au, you can find more information there. Fantastic. And for those interested in reading the book, uh, Behavioral Finance, A Guide for Financial Advisors, obviously it's aimed for financial advisors primarily, but a lot of the content is also quite relevant for uh, for super funds, for example. Uh, you can check that out online. It's on Amazon.com or Amazon.com.au, Book Depository and others. Uh, or you can get in touch with me via my website, which is Behavioral Finance Australia, which is all one word as well, .com.au. So on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Daniel, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Simon.